this week on the Backtable Podcast. For me, it's always been an agreement that the most experienced person in the room deploys the most important stent graft, whoever that is. I like it. If it's cardiac, if it's vascular, if it's IR, whoever it is. So if it's one of my colleagues who's on call and is not familiar and doesn't do a lot of these cases that are involved in the case, but they may not be the person deploying that stent graft. It may be a vascular surgeon or a cardiac surgeon because, and I say this all the time, the patient lying on the table is the most important person in that room. It's not your ego or the cardiac surgeon's ego or the vascular surgeon's ego. You do what's best for the patient. Welcome to the Backtable Podcast, your source for all things endovascular or otherwise minimally invasive. You can find all previous episodes of the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or backtable.com. First, a brief word from our sponsors. Cook Medical has a heritage of collaborating with healthcare professionals and institutions to drive innovation, advance clinical knowledge, and improve patient outcomes. Cook offers a comprehensive portfolio of products for your aortic interventions, their range of innovative devices is designed to address various aortic pathologies and provide effective treatment options and a patient-specific, disease-specific fit. Cook Medical's products are backed by extensive research, rigorous testing, and a commitment to quality. To learn more, connect with your local rep today, visit their website, or follow Cook Vascular on Twitter and LinkedIn. Now, back to the show. This is Michael Barraza returning as your host. And I'm honored to introduce Dr. Darren Klass, a clinical professor in interventional radiology at the University of British Columbia. How's it going, Darren? I'm very well, thanks. Michael, how are you? I'm great, thank you. Darren, reading over the stuff that they sent me, it says you're also a temporary clinical professor of radiology at Cleveland Clinic in London. How does that work out? Yeah, it's interesting, actually. So a few years ago, a colleague of mine, Matt Tam, who trained at the Cleveland Clinic, approached me and said, hey, the Cleveland Clinic may be moving to London or opening up a hospital in London, what do you think about working there as well? And so I was intrigued because it was going to be the first private hospital, first US hospital essentially in the United Kingdom. But at the time it was something interesting. And so, yeah, so essentially I work there eight to 10 weeks a year, helping to build an IR practice there. It's essentially the first private hospital in the United Kingdom that is able to do complex work where there's an intensive care unit, there's yeah. 11 ORs. So it's the first of its kind. It's I keep on saying to everyone, it's going to disrupt healthcare in, in the UK and people kind of look at me sideways, but it's an interesting concept. It's really great to work there, working with great people, but it does mean flying across the Atlantic four or five times a year. Yeah. So Darren, where you are now, University of British Columbia, is that a training program as well? Yeah. So it's an academic hospital. Uh, we have residents and fellows. We train a lot of fellows every year. Uh, we have four in interventional radiology every year and uh, a number of residents who over the years have shown more and more interest in, uh, in IR. Tell me a little bit about your practice there and, and you know what you guys are doing and what you're into. Yeah. So we do everything. But what we've done over the years is refined the practice in the sense of who does what. And what we've yeah. learned really is it's like anywhere, right? If you're good at something, you should be doing it and your colleagues will support you through it. And if they need to do something in a pinch, they'll do it. And if they need your help, they call me. And that's kind of how the aortic program has worked up until now as well. But we do a lot of interventional oncology. We have a lot of patients from Asia who live in Vancouver and surroundings. And so we see a lot of hepatitis B. So we have a very big interventional oncology program. 
I work with Gerald Lagine, who's one of the most well-respected and well-published interventional radiologists when it comes to vascular malformations. And so, yeah, we do everything and, and our practice, like everywhere, is evolving all the time. And I've always taken a big interest in the oncology side of things. That's where I did most of my research when I was training and, and obviously in the aortic world, which is bizarre for an interventional radiologist, but it's something that I've always loved. And I'm sure as we go through this, I'll be able to explain why I'm in the field and, and why I enjoy it so much. Yeah, it's becoming increasingly unusual in the United States for interventional radiology to be doing the aortic work. It's, it's hard to find training programs where you get exposure to a lot of the stuff you're doing. Is that something that you did in training? Did you do a lot of aortic work or did you pick it up out in practice? You know, I did a little bit. I trained in the United Kingdom in Norwich and we were doing mostly infrarenal stuff, but I got exposed enough to the thoracic world to at least understand it. But interestingly enough, aortic dissection has always been something that I've been really interested in. And so when I moved to Vancouver and was working as a fellow, one of the cardiac surgeons who's just retired, Mark Janis, was doing more and more aortic dissection work. And he was the he was really the catalyst to build the multidisciplinary program that we have in Vancouver, where he wanted vascular surgery, cardiac surgery, and interventional radiology to play in the sandbox together because he realized that at the end of his career, there's no way he was going to learn to deploy a stent graft. And there was no point in trying to learn. And so he wanted to bring people together who had complementary skills and could build a program that would be better for patients. And he really is the person that's responsible for building what we have now. The aortic dissection is complex, as you know, and in radiology and interventional radiology, we get, I think, a, a decent understanding of it, a decent exposure. But, you know, in your experiences, you've, you know, taken this on and it's grown to be a larger part of your practice. You know, why is it so important to understand, have a comprehensive understanding of the disease in order to optimize treatment outcomes? It's a question that I asked myself a long time ago, and the simple answer is this. If you present tomorrow with an aortic dissection, and we'll talk about this, but if you present with an aortic dissection that we classify as uncomplicated, hasn't ruptured, you haven't got end organ malperfusion, you haven't got ongoing back pain. So it's one of these classic dissections. You look at it on a CT scan and you don't think it needs intervention. Even for that person who has what we would call an uncomplicated dissection, at five years, their risk of dying is upwards of 30%, close to 40%. So wow, for me... I hate the word uncomplicated dissection because sure. in my opinion, I don't think it exists. Like if you tear your aorta in half, it ain't uncomplicated. Yeah. You know, it, it's it's a big deal. But the problem is, and bizarrely enough, for, for so many years, it's been treated as though it's a medical problem when actually a lot of yeah. the time it's not. It's a surgical problem. And it's only now when we're understanding more and more what the natural history of this disease is and what you can do to prevent patients from dying at five years have we become more aggressive in terms of how we treat it? And so even as a medical student, when I looked at aortic dissection, I was always dumbfounded by patients getting a massive tear in their aorta and walking out with hypertensive medication and that's how we'll see you in we'll see you in a year and see how you're doing. Totally. And then when you talk to cardiac surgeons who see some dissections or anyone really, and they're like, oh, no one dies from an aortic dissection if they leave hospital. That is just plain untrue. You know, we see a lot of patients who do really badly, even with a seemingly uncomplicated dissection. And that's really where my passion for the disease started. So we're going to be talking primarily about type B aortic dissection. And just for our listeners in training, 
at least in terms of treatment considerations, why is it important to distinguish between A and B? Two reasons. A is surgical emergency regardless of anything else. So you tear your aorta between mm-hmm. your aortic valve and your brachycephalic trunk, and that needs a scalpel. It's that simple. And if you can't be operated on, the likelihood is you're going to die. Yeah. Type B dissection, in a way, is can be a little bit less benign, but it can also be more deadly. But it's important because the treatment paradigm for a type B dissection is very different. It can be treated endovascularly if need be. Very rarely will you take a scalpel to a type B dissection because the aorta right. is so fragile. And I think that's the key thing. Okay. You know, it's the last thing that you do for patients is open them because they've got an aortic dissection. Okay. And so that I think that's what's really important. And then the, probably the single most important thing in terms of differentiating A's and B's is if you look at the data, if you present with a type A dissection and you make it out of hospital, your mortality plateaus. Interesting. Whereas if you have a type B dissection, your mortality continues to increase, which is understandable because you're kind of, with an A, if you if you survive and you naturally selected to survive and a surgeon is able to get you through the operation and you make it out of hospital, you're done. But the Bs, because they have ongoing issues around the dissection, they, they their mortality continues to go up. Okay. So, I mean, type B aortic dissection is not terribly uncommon. So how do you begin the process of determining which patients need intervention? So I, whenever I talk about aortic dissection, I always describe it as a lower incidence but high impact disease. And interestingly, you're right. It's not as uncommon as we think it is. So the first thing that you do is you look at the patient and you look at the imaging. And based on those two factors, if, if the patient's not acutely unwell, in other words, they're not in crushing renal failure, they don't have bowel ischemia, you then look at the CT or the imaging modality and you can then make a distinction as to how to treat them. And that really is, is the most important part of the whole decision-making process because if you have a CT scan that shows a complicated dissection, in other words, it's either going to rupture or it has ruptured or there's mm-hmm. end organ malperfusion, that patient needs to be treated emergently. The problem is the closer that you treat the patient to their initial dissection, the more likely you are to run into perioperative complications. So okay. the first 48 hours are like the absolute worst time to treat these patients because you can imagine you've got a friable aorta and a sick patient, and now you're going to have to put a stent into them. And that's where you get strokes. You can get high rates of paraplegia and lots of complications associated with a procedure. So that's the first thing to say. Is this patient at a risk of complicated dissection? Have they already got a complicated dissection? And if they don't, you can kind of take a step back. And then you can distinguish the patients who are truly uncomplicated and the patients who are what we think are uncomplicated, but they have high-risk features for progression. And that's really where we are at the moment because the uncomplicated, the complete uncomplicated, you know, we'll watch them and, and treat them with meds. The complicated are no-brainers. Like they are going to die if you don't do something. So that, yeah. that's, a, that's an easy one, right? In the middle of that, you have these uncomplicated, but they have high-risk features for progression. And those are the ones that at the moment we are looking for the right subset of patients that we can say, well, they're not complicated, but there's a risk that these guys or, or girls, whoever it is, are going to progress and we need to treat them. And the question is now, when do you treat them? So I'm just going to read off from the Society of Thoracic Surgery and the American Association of Thoracic Surgery, what they define as high risk features of a type B dissection, which refractory pain, refractory hypertension, bloody pleural effusion, aortic diameter greater than 40 millimeters, 
radiographic-only malperfusion, readmission, entry tear located on the lesser curve, and false lumen diameter greater than 22 millimeters. Are there any particular ones of those that, that really stand out for you? I know you said malperfusion and risk of rupture. Are there any other ones in there that you know you see that? It's like, okay, we need to move fairly quickly. Yeah, so there's two in there that are probably, at least for me, the two are the most important. The first one is a big entry tear. So if you have an entry tear bigger than a centimeter, because you think about it, you know, if you've got a huge entry tear and you are pressurizing a false lumen that essentially only has an adventitia in the outer layer of the media, that that thing's going to grow very quickly. Okay. So for me, that a big entry tear is always a, a sign that these patients are not going to do well. The second one is when there's very rapid interval growth. Okay. So if your if your aorta grows, you know, four or five millimeters in the first few days, even a week after your initial dissection, that's a bad prognostic edit. It means that okay. that you pressurize your false lumen and it's probably better to do something sooner rather than later. So we'll get into how you treat these patients in a little bit, but question for you. It seems like outside of some of these high risk features, and you touch on this as well. For a long time, we've been treating these patients medically, and why haven't we been more proactive in in intervening? To be honest with you, I think the reason is because we haven't understood the natural progression of the disease as well okay. as we do now. That's one. I think also there are so many specialties often that are involved in treating the hypertension after these patients leave hospital that no one ever got together and actually looked at what happens to these patients. So. You can imagine you're a cardiologist, an internal medicine physician who has an interest in hypertension, yeah. sometimes a GP, family doc. You are treating these patients. You treat them with their antihypertensive medications. Suddenly, they stop coming back to you. Oh, they passed away. They had an MI or they had a stroke or something. And you're like, okay, well, it happens. But what people fail to realize is, well, hold on a second. If all these patients with dissections are dying from major adverse cardiac events, maybe there's a trend here that we're missing. And I think that's really what the missing piece was for so many years because patients were dying in the community and so we never really got a good grip on what was actually happening to these people and so now because we're more in tune with what's going on and what happens to these patients we're more proactive in making sure that these patients are on the right medications and also if they're not responding that we do something so okay you take a patient say for example you leave hospital on four antihypertensives and you are 45, 55 years old, your risk of dying is 20 times higher Sheesh. than the average person. So, and that's from data. That's not me just sucking my thumb. That is from data clearly showing that if you are on a ton of antihypertensive meds, you have a high risk of dying. And it makes sense, right? Yeah. You're going to die Absolutely. from an MI, you're going to die from a stroke, whatever it is. And, and so again, people for so long thought that it was okay to have patients on six antihypertensives after an aortic dissection and the patient would be okay. And we've realized that that's, it's just not okay. Certainly not. So are we seeing a trend of treating more? And the next question is, do we think we should be treating more, if not all, of the at least the acute presentation? Yeah. So, I mean, I can use my own practice as a perfect example of the trend and where we're going. So when I started treating dissection at, say, 2012, around there, we were treating by far and away the majority were acute complicators because they didn't have an option. And then we were treating the chronic patients. And what I can tell you is treating a chronic dissection is probably the most complex thing that you can do in the aortic world because yeah. you have a very unhealthy aorta. 
grossly dilated. You have two lumina often supplying different visceral vessels. There's no simple solution to any of this. It often involves either a massive open surgical procedure or multiple endovascular procedures. It's hugely expensive for the other insurance companies or in Canada for the taxpayer. And the patients that we were never treating were what we would call now the uncomplicated subacute patients with high-risk features. Okay. And the definition of that is anyone between two weeks and three months after their initial dissection. That has become the population that we treat the most now when it comes to aortic intervention. Okay. That makes sense. So one more question about this. What about intramural hematoma? How do you approach those given their propensity to progress to a dissection? Yeah. So again, I remember from medical school being taught about intramural hematoma and oh yeah, we were taught that it was because of rupturing of the vasorum that caused intramural hematoma and it was a benign process. But interestingly, I looked into this a long time ago and the only paper published on the pathophysiology of intramural hematoma was published by someone named Krukenberg in 1912, where he had these patients who died. He did post-mortems and in 12 patients he found blood in the, what we would term now the false lumen. Yeah. He couldn't find an entry tear. There was no electron microscopy in those days. And so because he couldn't find an entry tear, he surmised that the cause was rupturing of the vasorum. And in reality, that's just not the case. Like an intramural hematoma is on the spectrum of aortic dissection. All that's happened is that you've got an entry tear, blood has flown into the false lumen, it's then thrombosed, and that tiny entry tear has closed off and you just can't see it anymore. But for all intents and purposes, an intramural hematoma is an aortic dissection that is thrombosed. And then it can kind of do one of three things. It either gets better, stays the same, or it gets worse. And then that's how we treat it as well. Okay. So you tend to watch them? Yeah, we watch them very closely because, again, a lot of these patients will disintegrate and they will become aneurysmal. Some patients will completely remodel. Some patients kind of stay the same and you always watch. And at the moment, we've got a patient who had an intramural hematoma two years ago has now developed focal reperfusion of the false lumen just above his celiac and, and he's become aneurysmal and so we're going to have to treat him. And it just shows you, you know, you can't leave these patients to languish in the community and never follow them up. They require lifelong follow-up. So I want to jump in in a little bit more detail and kind of look at this type A aortic dissection from start to finish at your institution. And when I had asked you for advice on some topics to go over, one of the things you brought up that I thought was interesting was have you told me about the patient journey and getting treated for aortic di- type B aortic dissection at University of British Columbia? Yeah. So, and again, this has been refined over the years as to how we treat these patients. But what will often happen is a patient will come in, they'll get diagnosed in the ER with an aortic dissection. They will then get admitted to our cardiac ICU and they will be optimized in terms of their blood pressure medication, keep the blood pressure low so they don't extend their dissection. And then at some point, they should get a consult either from cardiac surgery or from vascular surgeon. We've refined that over the years. It was always cardiac surgery, but now we've changed things and and vascular surgery are on for a week and cardiac surgery are on for a week. And whoever's on that week takes the initial referral. And that referral will involve going and seeing the patient, reviewing the imaging and coming up with a plan in terms of, is this truly an uncomplicated dissection? Are there any high-risk features? If they aren't, there's the patient's well controlled on minimal antihypertensives. Their pain has gone away and they optimize. They'll leave coronary ICU. They'll probably go to a step down ward. In that time, we will do interval CTs to make sure that one, the aorta is not expanding 
as I said, you know, the interval growth of the aorta in a short period of time is always a warning. And so we'll tend to be more aggressive with those patients. So we tend to image them quite a lot in their hospital stay, often after a few days, then at a week. And then if everything's stable, we maybe push them to two weeks. But again, the reason that we keep them in hospital for so long after a dissection is, again, from the literature, if you're in hospital, you're more likely to get treated quickly. And there's not an insignificant number of patients who present with what we would think are uncomplicated dissections who in the first two weeks develop either they either rupture or they develop malperfusion or something that requires an urgent intervention. So we generally tend to keep them in quite low. And in that time, we obviously do quite a lot of imaging and make sure that they are followed up appropriately. And then we'll review all those patients in our multidisciplinary aortic rounds once a month to make sure we've done the right thing. And those patients who didn't need treatment in the hospital but have high-risk features are then booked for uh, delayed endovascular treatment. And so that's okay. generally how we how we deal with most most patients as they move through the hospital. And I think it's key to emphasize how important imaging is in their journey because there's often these patients are asymptomatic, but they have four or five millimeters of interval growth. And it's so important for the radiologist who reads the imaging to understand the pathophysiology of the disease so that they can provide some guidance to the clinician as to as to what is the best way forward. And so we dictate our reports. We dictate all of the dissection reports. We actually put in there, are they high-risk features and what are they? And if we identify at least two high-risk features, we'll actually say, this patient has more than two high-risk features. They need to be seen in thoracic aortic stent graft rounds, and we need to plan for therapy. So you mentioned multidisciplinary conference. In the acute setting, in the hospital, who all is involved with deciding whether or not to intervene? Do they just consult you and then it's like, all right, I think this is appropriate. Or you know, are you guys talking through these patients individually and coming up with a treatment plan? Yeah, so it's always the three specialties. It's always cardiac, it's always vascular, and it's always interventional radiology. How that process takes place is sometimes varies, but at the end of the day, before the patient is willed into the OR and, and we do a case, all three specialties have agreed we've got to treat this patient. Historically, I've done almost all of the sizing for the patients. And if I'm away, my colleagues will do it, but I'll always have some input. But no patient goes into that OR for treatment until all three specialties are on the same page. And I think it's important because sometimes you may think something needs to be treated more urgently and, and one of your colleagues brings up a point that you maybe missed or you didn't think about. And, and it's so important sometimes to have everyone involved so that everyone has an objective assessment of that patient and you eventually make the decision that is right for the patient. And sometimes I'm overruled by my vascular surgery and cardiac surgery colleagues. I'll say, I think we need to treat this patient and, and they'll say, no, I think we should take a step back. And there's other days where they'll think, actually, I think this patient's doing well. And I'll point out something on a CT. And I say, no, you know, I think we need to do this more urgently. And, and then we decide, okay, we're going to do this and, and we move together. But it's always about everyone being on the same page when we make that final decision. So Darren, sometimes you're doing these urgently and sometimes you have a little more time to plan. Tell me a bit about your process of planning your case and how you have to alter that in terms of some complicated features that require a quick intervention. Yeah. So probably the two biggest decision-making processes when we're planning these cases is how to size the graft. If you are doing an aortic dissection in the first 48 hours, you have to be very careful about oversizing the graft in the proximal landing zone because the risk of retrograde dissection is so high. So the margin for error in the first two days is minimal. 
And that's probably a time when it's it's changing rapidly too, right? So you talked about with these complicated ones that grow quickly. That that's probably a challenge. Oh yeah, absolutely. And the and that's why high quality imaging is is so important. So we do a lot of advanced imaging. We do ultra high pitch CT so that we can kind of freeze the aorta as much as possible and yeah. get the most accurate measurement. We kind of always measuring on double obliques to make sure that whatever sizing we get we are 100% convinced that we are not oversizing the graft because that's probably the single biggest mistake you can make when you treat that okay. patient is, is treating a type B dissection and causing a retrograde type A. You know, And sure. it, it happens, but it shouldn't happen that often. And that for me is the most critical part of the decision-making process in the first 48 hours. And then once you're beyond like two weeks, for example, when you're out of the acute phase, the margin extends a little bit. You, there's a little bit more leeway in terms of sizing. But then the decision-making changes because in the acute phase, your only job, at least if it's not uh, ruptured, is to cover the entry tear and then scaffold open the true lumen as much as possible. Mm -hmm. If they've ruptured, obviously, there's, there's no option. You've got to cover the whole thoracic aorta. But you can imagine if you are treating an acute dissection and you have to cover the whole thoracic aorta, the risk of spinal cord ischemia is not insignificant. So we try to avoid that if we can. Whereas in the subacute phase, we can be a little bit more liberal and we'll often cover the whole aorta from the subclavian all the way down to the celiac because we want to remodel that aorta as much as possible so that we can thrombose the false lumen and make sure that they remodel and, and their mortality then goes down. Okay. In terms of equipment, and we don't have to go into the specific details, but do you have a lot of options in terms of of sizing, or do you have to get time to, to have the equipment brought in for a specific case? Yeah, so we've been extremely lucky with, specifically with Cook. Uh, we work with Gore as well a lot, but we have Cook and Gore on our shelf, and we've been very lucky in the sense of we've had a lot of options for sizing. We keep a lot of stock on consignment for specifically these situations where we don't have time either to order it in, or it's gonna take a long time to get it. And I think if we lived on the East Coast of Canada, uh, where a lot of the medical device companies have warehouses, it would be a lot easier to keep less consignment. But, you know, we're a five-hour flight from Toronto. And, sure. you know, if you need to do a case urgently, sometimes you just don't have the time. And so we have a lot of inventory on the shelf that we keep mainly for emergencies. And then for the elective cases, we'll order it in specifically. How is planning one of these cases for dissection different from doing, you know, like a T-bar for an aneurysm? Yeah, so there's a, a few things that you have to take into account. The first one is that you're dealing with a very sick aorta. And because you're dealing with a sick aorta, your, as I said, your sizing is key. So with an aneurysm, you're going to oversize 20% in your proximal landing zone. And that's fine because you need a good seal. With dissection, you need to be very careful. So you don't want to oversize more than 10% and sometimes even less than that in the very hyperacute phase, that first 48 hours. So sizing is much more critical in dissection than it is in aneurysmal disease. And then the type of stent that you use and where you land is important as well. So for example, if you have a dissection that extends to the left subclavian artery, you often will have to either transpose or bypass that vessel. Right. In trauma, for example, we often don't even bother with transposing or bypassing because you know, often these patients won't develop symptoms. But in dissection, because there is more of a risk of spinal cord ischemia, you really want to make sure that you perfuse that subclavian artery because it does contribute to the spinal cord circulation quite a lot. So we always revascularize that subclavian with aortic dissection. And that's, again, that's another thing that's, that's really important is 
making sure that you have the right people doing the procedures that they're good at because it's so critical. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at this for dissection compared to aneurysm, you know, with aneurysm, you want to prevent endoleaks. What, what is the main risk of undersizing? You know, when you're worried about not going over 10% larger, what is the risk if you undershoot it? To be honest with you, there isn't. I, at least I don't okay. see a huge risk. And my goal in a hyperacute dissection is to treat the problem. So if the patient's malperfusing, I'm totally okay if I slightly undersize the graft, there's a little bit of anti-grade re-entry flow into the false lumen from the top, but I have preferential flow in the false lumen because I can always come back and clean that up with some coils or whatever in the false lumen. But what I don't want to do is take someone who's now malperfusing, oversize the graft, and then cause a retrograde. So I always say to my trainees, in aortic dissection, do not aim for angiographic perfection. Just get a stent in quickly, reperfuse the true lumen, reestablish normal flow into your visceral vessels, and just get out and come back another day when that patient's a little bit better. So when you have a, a rupture, it's a little bit different. And, and in that case, you want to be more accurate. You know, you, you don't want to undersize if you, if you don't have to. So you want to get close to that 10% if you can, purely to decrease the risk of some anti-grade re-entry flow. But at the end of the day, if you're sitting on the edge between oversizing and causing a retrograde and slightly undersizing, again, we have such good skills when it comes to dealing with coils and with endo leaks that we, we know what we can do and, and it's pretty easy to get into a false lumen and just shut down any flow that there is there and obviously prevent the false lumen from growing. Let's move on to actually doing the case. And one thing I want to touch on is equipment, namely what equipment aside from the graphs is, is essential for you to do these cases, including you know what you need in an imaging room. So a good image intensifier, C-arm is key for sure. But more important than that, and again, you know, this is something that for me is inflexible, is intravascular ultrasound. Yeah. So this might be a little bit controversial for some people, but I do not think that you should be treating aortic dissection if you don't have intravascular ultrasound. It's reasonable. Because the, the penalty for making a mistake and stenting into the false lumen or thinking that you're in the true but you're in the false is often life and death kind of thing. And, and there have been cases where... People have been stented and the, the operators have failed to recognize that they were in the false lumen and stented from true into false and the patients died on the table. So it happens. Oh, absolutely. I didn't realize how much better you could see these flaps and everything else involved with it until I started using IVUS in the legs. And it, I think it's essential. Yeah. And there you go. I mean, as you know, if you're doing peripheral vascular disease, how easy it is to undersize a balloon because you grossly underestimate the luminal diameter of the vessel that you're treating. It, it's no different in the aorta. Yeah. And the interesting thing is when you use IVUS and you see how mobile the dissection flap is, you realize how quickly the whole concept of this petticoat technique is so critical to treating these aortic patients. So sometimes people think, oh, IVUS is a luxury, it's expensive, but for me, it's, it's not. It's absolutely key in the treatment paradigm, clinical decision-making, and, and also looking at how you're doing during the case. How far you have to extend with uncovered stents? Do you have to extend your covered stents further? It really can help you. And it also decreases the stress levels in the OR because you are unequivocal as to where your catheter is. You know for sure. I'm in true lumen. There's no question. And it saved us so many times in really complex aortic cases where the true lumen is completely compressed mm -hmm. and 
people say, oh, you can just throw a pigtail up and, and run the pigtail up and it'll stay in the true lumen. That's absolutely not true. You can have okay. huge perivisceral fenestrations that'll cause the even a pigtail catheter to flop into the false lumen and you won't even know it. So obviously is key. So let's just start with some of the basics. Are you doing these cases solo with the tech or do you have another physician operating with you? Yeah. So every single case, there are three physicians scrubbed okay, for the Okay. So case. they're scrubbing in with you. Oh, Got yeah. it. Every okay. case. That makes sense. Yes. Yeah. And I've done that on purpose. Uh, one is because you often need multiple pairs of hands, especially oh, when I'm you're handling sure. all this crazy equipment. These cases will often happen in the middle of the night where your nurse and your technologist are unfamiliar with the equipment. They don't know how to prep the aortic stent graft. And so you need other people to, yeah. to check on things. And the other thing is, you know, if these patients are really sick and there's a lot of people in the OR talking, it can be very disruptive and you want someone to always check and second guess what you're doing to make sure you're not missing something or making a mistake or you haven't thought of something and or maybe they see something on the imaging that you've missed because you're so focused on what you're doing they kind of have a slight step back and can look at the periphery of the image and say hey hold on a second that that left renal ain't enhancing as uh, as well as the right side maybe we should stent it and so we've always had three people in the room and for me it's always been a an agreement that the most experienced person in the room deploys the most important stent graft whoever that is i like it if it's cardiac if it's vascular, if it's IR, whoever it is. So if it's one of my colleagues who's on call and is not familiar and doesn't do a lot of these cases, they're involved in the case, but they may not be the person deploying that stent graft. It may be a vascular surgeon or a cardiac surgeon because, and I say this all the time, the patient lying on the table is the most important person in that room. It's not your ego or the cardiac surgeon's ego or the vascular surgeon's ego. You do what's best for the patient. Man, that's such a great point to having somebody watching with you. And it's like I do stroke cases and, you know, you get so locked in to your angio and what you're looking at. And, and sometimes it's, you know, it's a, the person looking in the control room is like, hey, hang on, let's take another look at that. And that is so nice. So access, do you, you get percutaneous or cut down? It's a great question as well. So we almost exclusively do cut down. And some people may think that's a little bit of overkill. And oh, you know, you got two surgeons in the room. <laughs> exactly. That's that's my feeling. I'm like, just cut down. It's easier. We don't have to worry at the end about closure and everything else. Oh. It's a surgical closure. So I'm totally happy with it. And again, like my feeling is always this guy or girl, whoever it is on the table, they ain't going anywhere tomorrow. It's not no. like they need a percutaneous <laughs> procedure. You know, they've just no. had their aorta torn in half. We've just fixed it. There's no chance they're going anywhere. This isn't a routine EVAR. No. This is, uh, no. I'm, I'm 100% with you on this. Yeah. So once you guys get access and you put your sheets in, how do you navigate into the aorta? I mean, particularly when it's extending into the iliac arteries, how do you navigate up to where you want to be with the tension of the true and false lumen? Yeah. So uh, again, key is, is looking at the CT scan before and planning which side you want okay. your device to go up because that sometimes is the most difficult thing. So, for example, if you have a 312 dissection that goes into your left external iliac okay. and your right one, it stops at the bifurcation of your internal and external, we'll use the right side because it's obviously going to be technically easier because you've got a little bit of a runway to play with to find your way into the true lumen. Yeah. You know, when both sides go down into the groin, it can be very, very challenging. But often with ultrasound, if you know on, on your CT scan, okay, well, the true lumen is anterior, the pulse is post posterior. Okay. When you do your ultrasound guided puncture, 
you can do that even with a groin open. You you know you can stick yeah, an ultrasound probably, on. Probably easier. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> and and you can pretty much guard in there. Now, if you've gotten a sheath into a, an undissected distal external iliac, and now you've got to navigate into the true lumen, what I tend to do is I just put a hydrophilic wire through the ibis catheter, and I just fire it up, and I just go up and down a couple of times. And if it goes into the true lumen, great. And if it doesn't, what I'll do is. Often I'll just do a bit of an obliquity, ipsilateral obliquity, do a run through the sheath and map out where the intermedial flap is, where the entry or the exit tear is. And then you normally some image overlay, put it on that, and then just trying to guard my wire into the true lumen. And then obviously confirm with Ibis once you're in there. So you confirm with Ibis, you know, you're making your way up with that. Ideally, where do you want to be before you, you start doing your arteriogram? So with Ibis, to be honest with you, I never do an arteriogram until I am ready to deploy the first stent graft in the arch. Okay. Because I'm comfortable and confident that my CT scan has told me everything I need to know. But bear in mind when I say that, if we have a patient, for example, that's transferred from outside of Vancouver, which is quite common, and their CT scan is historical, in other words, it's more than, say, eight hours yeah. old, I'll re-image them. Wow. Eight hours is historical. It is. Your dissection can yeah. change so quickly. That's amazing. And we've been caught out. You know, we had a patient many years ago. I'll tell you an anecdote, but uh, this was probably 2014. We had a patient transferred in from another hospital. CT scan was eight, 10 hours old. We didn't bother rescanning them, took them to the OR, spent, I'm not joking, five hours trying to get into what we thought was the true lumen based on the CT scan. But at some point, the flow dynamics had completely reversed. And what we did was spend five hours getting into the false lumen, then put, oh, a, a, put a stent in to fenestrate that uh, false lumen, but all the time we would be in the true lumen. So here, I mean, you can be caught out so easily uh, when you do these cases. And, and so there's two things that I never worry about. Number one is contrast-induced nephropathy and two, radiation dose. Because they're not no, real. No, they're not. <laughs> <laughs> we can always fix those. Well- these change a lot, you know, as you, as you said, and uh, it can be hard to see. Is there ever a role for cone beam CT during a case? Yes and no. I, I think if you are comfortable with ultrasound, I think you are pretty good to go. And I don't think the cone beam itself is going to add much to your case because you know, based on your CT, what you need to do, you know, if there's visceral vessel compromise, which vessel it is. And so, sure. so for example, the way I do a case is I have a scatheter in all the way up to the arch. Through that, I put my Lundy, Ibis catheter comes out, and then I put my Stencraft in that I've decided on pre-procedure. So I've made my clinical decision as to what size graft I'm going to use before we go into theater. And then that graft goes in. I put it close to where I think the landing zone is, get my obliquities based on the CT scan and orthogonal projections, and then I do my first run. Okay. That, well, that was one of my next yeah. questions. How do, you, how do you land it? Yeah. Okay. So that- that makes a lot of sense. One thing you brought up, don't ask you about. Could you just tell me a little bit about the petticoat technique and what that entails? Yeah. So it's interesting that there's been a few things in my career that I've looked at and I've thought to myself, this is an absolute no-brainer. One of them was the petticoat, and I'll, I'll talk about that in a second. The other one was radial intervention, which I'm not going into, but those are oh, the two no-brainers. You know brainers. I was going to ask you about that. <laughs> there, there are two, those, are the, those are my two absolute no-brainers. And- the petticoat for me is a no-brainer because of the way that it works. So for people who are listening to this, if you don't know what the petticoat is, it is 
a combination of a covered stent and an uncovered stent that you put into the dissected aorta. And the premise is that the covered stent covers your entry tear, so it redirects flow into the false lumen, into the true lumen, sorry. And then the uncovered stent, which is actually a very low radial force stent, you then put in, and what that does is it scaffolds open the true lumen. Because you can imagine, you've got a very soft, friable, um, malleable, intermedial flap that is moving around with systole and diastole. And even if you put in one covered stent, you can still have a lot of uh, motion of that intermedial flap below that covered stent. So what the uncovered stent essentially does is it stabilizes that flap and it also opens up your true lumen. But because it's a low radial force stent, it doesn't do it with a huge amount of force. It kind of allows okay. nature to take its course and, and kind of just, it's literally like a scaffolding that you use for anything else. It, it kind of just provides a little bit of support and allows the body to do what it needs to do. And we got the uh, uncovered stent in Canada many, many years ago, long before the US. So in Canada, we have something called special access, which is, it allows physicians to use medical devices that haven't yet received Health Canada approval, okay. as long as there's some data behind it and the physician ultimately takes responsibility for that patient and the device. And so we got Health Canada approval actually after the US, but I've been using dissection stents and the pedicoat technique since 2013. Wow. So, you know, we have a lot of experience and we've just uh, started doing some retrospective data analysis to get a better understanding as to, you know, how patients have done. Because we feel that the pedico technique, even in subacute dissections, helps a lot with remodeling and also with stabilizing that intermedial flap. And it often will decrease the need to extend your covered stents further into the thoracic aorta, particularly in acute dissections where your risk of paraplegia is so much higher than your subacute phase. How far down do you take the uncovered portion? All the way, buddy. And how does that interact with the visceral vessels? Any issues with that? No, is the short answer. So basically, I take the dissection stents down to the bifurcation or to the lowest point of the dissection itself. So if the dissection ends in zone nine below the renals, I'll just take it to that point and, and stop there. If it goes all the way into the iliacs, I take it down to the bifurcation. And the reason I do that is because I know that the dissection stents stabilize the flap. I'm doing it for as much of the aorta as I can. Yeah. On the premise that if you stabilize the flap, you help with remodeling. And again, if you look at the data from Peter Mossop, who was instrumental in designing the dissection stents many years ago, if you use a combination of covered and uncovered stents in aortic dissections, you uh, remodel better and your need for intervention is decreased. And that's, that was shown many, many years ago. So there's a clear advantage to doing that. And what we found anecdotally as well is if you use the dissection stents and you cover you know, part of the thoracic aorta and you cause the thoracic aortic false lumen to thrombose, for whatever reason, and we're going to look at it when we look at our data, but the abdominal aorta and the perivisceral aorta does not seem to expand as quickly once you thrombose that thoracic false lumen. Okay. So yeah, I mean, really, I look forward to having this discussion again when we're talking about transradial petticoats. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> it's coming, man. It's coming. So you get your stents in, it's deployed, everybody's cheering, and they're proud of you. Did you finally do an angio then? You're reluctantly. No, I am joking. Yeah, I do. What are you looking for? So 
all I'm looking for is I'm looking to make sure that the false lumen fills much more slowly than the true lumen. So I don't care if there's false luminal flow. The only time I care if there's false luminal flow is if the if the aorta is ruptured because then I've got a you know thrombosis with coils or whatever else. But in general, all I'm looking for is preferential flow into the true lumen. But and then the most important thing I'm looking for, particularly in malperfusion, is I want to see those four visceral vessels lining up. Okay. Now, if they don't, then you've got to go after it. And I think a lot of the trepidation, particularly in the US when the dissection stents were released, was that if you use these dissection stents, you are precluding the ability to stent the visceral vessels. And it's just simply not true. It's not more difficult. It's as easy as if you didn't have them. And actually, I find sometimes it's easier when you have dissection stents in because it gives you a visual border to where you want to land your stent in the aorta. That is a great point. Yeah, sometimes renal stents, it's hard to know if you hit it or not. Yeah. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Okay. Okay. You had mentioned that sometimes in the acute, complicated setting, you have somewhere you just, you got to get the stent graft in quickly and you said, we can come back and clean this up later. What kind of findings on, you know, your angio or IVIS would lead you to believe you're going to need to come and do more work later? Rapid filling of the false lumen in, for example, a malperfusion case. So, for example, when you do your final angiogram, if you see very, very rapid filling of the false lumen, particularly when it goes from the diaphragm all the way up to the subclavian, in other words, the entire false lumen is filling really quickly on angiography, that for me is a bit of a warning that okay. possibly this isn't going to thrombose. So that's one. If you see anti-grade re-entry flow, in other words, anti-grade flow into the false lumen from the leading edge of your stent graft, that's almost always you have to re-intervene on that. Sometimes the patients are heparinized and when you stop the heparin, that will slow down or thrombose. But the speed at which your false lumen fills and the direction of the probably the two biggest indicators whether or not you're going to have to re-intervene. Is there a role for fenestration in these cases? I'm not a big fan of fenestration. I'll tell you why. Like my feeling on dissection has always been just fix the problem. Yeah. So the problem is the dissection. Whatever the end result is, the primary problem is the dissection. So for example, if you have dynamic malperfusion of a renal artery, why would you fenestrate it when you can stent the whole aorta, fix your problem, and then stabilize that intermedial flap? Now, if you're not using the dissection stents, you could still have a malperfusion even after you've put in your covered stents. So, the, and that's why I come back to the whole point of the dissection stents, because if you're able to stabilize that flap, the likelihood of you needing to stent a visceral vessel actually decreases. So I could probably count on my two hands the number of times I've had to go in and stent a visceral vessel, even in a patient with malperfusion, once I've used the dissection stent, because that dissection stent has the ability to stabilize that flap. And I think a lot of the time with malperfusion, what you're dealing with is a highly mobile flap that is intermittently occluding the true lumen during systole. And once you've opened that true lumen up and you've stabilized the flap, it sorts out the perfusion to your visceral vessels. And so you probably don't have to. And for that reason, I don't think, at least for me, I don't think fenestration is as commonly needed as I think some people think it is. So you mentioned spinal ischemia as a risk of doing this. Where is your institution on preoperative lumbar drains? It's been different at, at different places I've been. Yeah, we are very conservative. So if we can, everyone gets a lumbar drain. How does it help you? 
I mean, it's it's good and it's bad, but interestingly enough, we have not had an insignificant number of complications from lumbar drains. We've had paraplegia. I shear off, I'm sure. Yeah. No, we, we have. Like we've had we've had patients become paraplegic from, uh, from intrathecal bleeds. Yeah. So, you know, you get a bloody tap, you put the lumbar drain in, you give a patient 10,000 units of heparin, recipe for disaster. Makes perfect sense. I mean, yeah. it's a huge needle you're putting yeah, it in with. Exactly. So- yeah, we've had a couple of patients become paraplegic from it. And so wow. now our premise is if we have an elective case and we put in a, a lumbar drain and there's, it's a bloody tap, we stop the procedure and we cancel it and we redo it another day. In our acute cases, because of that risk, what we'll tend to do is do the procedure without a lumbar drain. And then sometimes I'll get the lumbar drain on the unit afterwards. Because in reality, the likelihood of having spinal cord ischemia immediately after the procedure is much, much lower. Right. And, and so as long as you put the drain in at some point, you're okay. But then again, a lot of places don't put it in at all. Yeah. What we've started to do with our chronics is if they have a lot of intercostals, is they get sent to me and I do intercostal artery embolization. Interesting. To decrease the risk of spinal cord ischemia. And that's kind of a newer evolving technique where- Why would that decrease the risk of spinal cord ischemia? Yes, a great question. So the blood supply to the spinal cord is not as simple as we think it is. It's not just the no. arch of Adamkiewicz, right? It's a very complex network of, of vessels and they derive their blood supply from intercostal artery branches, from lumbar branches, from branches of the subclavian artery. And the premise is if you sequentially thrombose or occlude the very proximal intercostal arteries, you stress the spinal cord and you stimulate angioneogenesis and you cause the spinal cord to recruit blood vessels from elsewhere so that when you eventually stent or cover the entire thoracic aorta, the spinal cord has been preconditioned. Okay. Yeah. So it's kind of like doing an embolization in a Y90 trying to divert yeah. flow. Yeah. That's cool. What do you use as your embolic agent, just out of curiosity? So generally coils, I'm a big fan of detachable coils. I don't use Me pushable too. coils. Like I'm like, why? There's enough stress in the world without pushable coils. I don't need don't. them in my life. Like I, honestly. I, if I never used a snare in an artery again, I'd be happy. Amen, brother. So I know we've already talked about how you close these patients. Let's talk about follow-up starting, yeah. you know, within when they're still in the hospital and beyond. How do you manage that? So once we've stented them, generally we tend to get a follow-up CT in the first, if we can, in the first 48 hours to make sure that we've achieved what we wanted to and also as a baseline. So we, we can at least have a very recent post-procedural baseline CT. If they are in like profound renal failure, we may push them a little bit longer, but generally we want to get a baseline CT quite soon after the procedure. And then we get one more just before they leave hospital because that baseline CT before they leave hospital, if they, for example, have flow in their false lumen, it'll tell me what imaging modality I'm going to use at one month to image them. So for example, if we've stented a patient for malperfusion, they have residual false luminal flow at their discharge CT at one month, what we'll do is instead of doing a CT scan, I'll do a time-resolved MRI and look at the direction of flow in the false lumen and the speed of flow in the false lumen because that gives me an idea as to how quickly or if I need to intervene on that false lumen and thrombose it. So that's kind of what they get before they leave hospital. And then we generally tend to image them at one month, three months, six months, and then 12 months, at least in the first year. 
And then depending on what the findings are on each of those CTs, whether we need to touch something up, we really need to re-intervene, whether we need to extend the cupboard stents uh, for whatever reason. So that's generally our imaging protocol for the first year. And then at the end of the first year, depending on what their aorta looks like, if they've completely thrombosed their false lumen in the thoracic aorta, we might push them to annual follow-up. Yeah. So just a couple of final questions. Is an interventional radiologist doing something that not a lot of interventional radiologists do, but doing it well, how do you advocate for these dissection patients to make sure they get the treatment they need and, and beyond? What I think is you need to look at an aortic dissection like cancer. So if you do nothing for this patient, their risk of dying is, is significant. And as interventional radiologists, even if we maybe not as involved in, in the treatment paradigm as some other centers are, I think we have a lot to offer. You, you've heard from me already. There are a multitude of procedures that these patients often require, sometimes before or sometimes after their intervention, that I think interventional radiologists are really poised to help with false luminal embolization for one, intercostal embolization another, and then visceral stenting is, a, is another one. So it's one of these things where even if you're not directly involved at the outset, you can really play a role in the in the care of that patient at some point down the road. So yeah. it's worth knowing about. And for those IRs who join who are still doing some diagnostic work, if nothing else, every time you look at a dissection, the way I look at it is, show me a reason why I shouldn't be intervening on this patient rather than let me find a reason I should. And look at it from the other perspective of, I want a reason not to treat this patient. Yeah. Again, as I said, I'd ask you for advice on some some things to talk about. And you had mentioned raising awareness. These patients are missed. It seems like a good opportunity for diagnostic radiologists or combined IRDRs to really take hold of these. Yeah. And especially if you're working in a center that doesn't treat these, sometimes the most important thing you can do is, is to highlight these findings, these high-risk features. For example, let's say, I think you need to get a cardiac surgery, vascular yeah. surgery opinion because these patients or this patient probably should be treated because even as, as mature as our program is, every so often we drop the ball and, and a patient is missed for whatever reason. There are a multitude of instances where patients are languishing on ICU in other hospitals on six antihypertensives. Now they develop renal failure. Nephrologists tell the ICU attending, oh, it's because you're CTing them too much when actually these patients have malperfusion. And uh, what I always say to my trainees is a patient who has an aortic dissection, who has renal failure, has malperfusion until proven otherwise. Okay. Well, Darren, that's about all I got. Is there anything that I didn't cover that you think is important to mention? No, I think, uh, I think we've covered pretty much everything. Uh, again, the important messages here, firstly, awareness. Be aware that this disease kills people. Secondly, if you're going to do this, you're going to want to do it well. Don't enter into this domain unless you're, you're confident that you have a good team of people around you. And that's why I think multidisciplinary approaches to aortic dissection are so key. And why it's so important because, like I said, you know, at the end of the day, the patient's the most important thing. And fix a dissection. Fix it, man. <laughs> fix it. Thanks, man. I appreciate you sharing your time and expertise. That was fantastic. My and pleasure. And thank you to our listeners. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at at underscore Backtable on Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Backtable is produced and hosted by myself, Aaron Fritz, and co-hosts Chris Beck, Sabine Don, Michael Barraza, Jacob Fleming, and Ali Behetti. 
Our audio team is led by Kieran Gannon, with support from Josh McWhirter, Aaron Bowles, Nick Shellcross, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and digital marketing led by Brian Schmitz. Article and transcript support by Taylor Robinson. And Delaney Aguilar. Social media and PR by Ann Dang. Administrative support provided by Jim Louie Kinnebrew. Intro and extra music is Ripperoo by Skeptic Moon. Find us on Spotify or at local live music venues in New Orleans, Louisiana. Thanks again for listening. The content, information, opinions, and viewpoints contained in this podcast presentation are for educational purposes only. Some opinions expressed may represent those of the speaker and are based on their own clinical experience in their practice. This information is not meant or intended to serve as a substitute for a healthcare professional's clinical training, experience, or judgment. Guest speakers are paid consultants of Cook Medical. Always refer to the instructions for use for complete prescribing information, including indications for use, warnings, precautions, adverse events, and deployment instructions.